Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Bibles with you, you can open them and turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're not already there, I just want to thank Carmen for reading that passage for us. That is going to be our passage this morning. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Brenton Wade, and I am one of the pastors here at VBF. I am not our main teaching pastor. That's Pastor Greg. Uh, but Pastor Greg is very generous with allowing others opportunities to preach. And uh, so I feel very thankful and grateful to have the opportunity to teach God's Word this morning and to have such a wonderful passage. And so uh, before we look at it and before we begin, I'd like us to just begin with prayer. Father God, the truths in this passage are too glorious for us to really comprehend uh, too glorious, Lord, for um, me to even teach, and yet uh, you've given them us in your word. And we know that you're good, and your word is for your people. So God, as we approach this passage this morning, I just ask for every help to clearly communicate the truth in this passage. And Lord, I ask that your spirit would use the truth of your word to transform us. For anyone here who is not a Christian, for anyone who is dead in their sins, Lord, by the power of your word and your spirit, would you make them come alive in Christ? And would you challenge and encourage and strengthen all of your people here? We pray this all in your name. Amen. How does someone change their attitude? When you're at a place in life, when you see in yourself the need to grow, how do you go about doing that? How do you go about changing your attitude or your mindset? 
I think oftentimes in life we can feel a desire to grow, but feel stuck in a rut, maybe unable to change. As I reflected on this passage of Scripture this week, and I asked myself this question, a few things came to my mind. Um, And to illustrate, I'd like to use the example of a parent trying to teach their child the attitude of thankfulness. One way a parent might go about in helping their child have the attitude of thankfulness would be to perform an action that they otherwise wouldn't perform. So maybe they make their child say thank you to everyone. Another way might be to think about thankfulness or meditate on thankfulness a lot. So maybe you're asking your child, what are you thankful for? You have them make a list of things that they're thankful for. And I think both those things can be helpful in changing our attitude. But I believe there's something that is more powerful in changing our attitudes. And that is the example that is set by the parent of thankfulness. If the parent lives with gratitude, if they express that often, if they even say to the child that they're thankful for them, I believe that that is one of the most powerful ways that an attitude can change. And same with every adult in the room. We can perform actions that we otherwise wouldn't perform. We can read books and meditate on a certain attitude, and those things are helpful and good. But when we see that attitude in someone we admire deeply, when we're affected by that attitude, if it's an attitude of love and we've been affected by that love, that has the potential to change us deeply. In our passage of Scripture today, Paul gives one main command in verse 5. Have this mind. Or, as Pastor Greg uh, broke it down for us last week, the idea is have this attitude. What attitude is he speaking of? Well, it's clear from the verses above that he's speaking of the attitude of humility. Now, before we get into our verses today, I want to just kind of take us where we are in the letter and what flow of thought are we in with Paul? Because maybe you're visiting for the first time today, and if you are, I just want to welcome you, say we're glad that you're here. Uh, But maybe you've missed a couple weeks, maybe you're not sure where we're at. I just want to take a second. So Paul begins this, Paul the Apostle, someone commissioned by God as a missionary, and he begins by writing to this church that supports him uh, financially and in prayer. Uh, It's basically like one of our missionaries that we support. He writes a letter back to them, and first he talks about his own sufferings for the sake of the gospel, and he really encourages them by saying that God has used his suffering to advance the gospel, and he has joy even in the midst of his suffering. But then he turns to the church, and he calls them to live lives in a manner or in a way that is worthy of this great gospel. And he talks about what that means. And he says that you as a church are to stand firm in the world. Stand firm as a witness for Christ, facing persecution, facing suffering, just as, just as Paul did for the sake of Christ. But Paul then goes on to say that there's a key element that we need if we're going to be a bold witness for him in the world. And that key element is unity. We need to be united for the sake of our witness. But Paul knows church unity is often difficult. Even in the church, there's often division. And so we need to be called back to unity. 
But he doesn't just call us to unity. He gives us the key to unity, which is humility. So see the flow of thought here. Paul is calling us to the attitude of humility in this passage. But it's humility for the sake of unity and unity for the sake of our bold witness as a church in this world. We can even see this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. So Paul is not calling us to just go and be individual humble Christians in all the places we are. Although surely that's part of it, our individual humility. But he's saying, this humility that I'm calling to you is to be among yourselves. It's to be among the church, in the church, for the sake of your unity and for the sake of witness. So now Paul brings us to this attitude of humility. Humility is something that we all need because we all struggle with pride. Pride is the opposite or the antithesis of humility. And it's something that we all struggle with in different ways. For instance, my pride looks a lot different than your pride. Pride doesn't just look one way. We all struggle with it. We all have it. I know my own heart, and I'm saddened by the times that it's often filled with pride, and I need the Lord to change me. But I love how C.S. Lewis writes of pride. He says that pride is the thing that everyone hates when they see in other people, but no one thinks they're guilty of themselves. And so, as we talk about the attitude of humility this morning, the question for you to begin is, do you recognize the pride in your own life? Because we all need humility. So, to bring us back to where we began, how then do we change? How then do we follow this command of Paul to have this attitude of humility? And I think, again, where Paul is going to lead us, and what I think is most powerful, is to look at the example of humility. To be affected by someone that we see humility in and that we've been affected by that humility. And now, if I was just reading this letter for the first time, I mean, Paul's already begun by talking about his sufferings and his imprisonment, and then he urges the church to these things, and then as he gets to an example, I would think, oh, well, maybe Paul will give us an example of how he's humble and how he has, you know, displayed humility toward the church, but he doesn't. Rather, he gives us the most shocking example, the humility of God. So, let's look together at verse 6. Yeah, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Let's stop right there. Now, some of this language, I think it's helpful to work through because I think the main idea is very easy to see in this passage, but some of the language can, be, um, can trip us up because of some of the words. So I want to work through some of the language here. Uh, when It says the form of God. Form is not a word that's used to talk about a temporary mode of being. It's not like Jesus is shape-shifting into different forms. Rather, the Greek word for form speaks of the very nature of something, the very essence of something. And so what Paul is saying here 
is that Jesus is God. And in this passage, we get this great glimpse into the incredible nature of God, that God is Trinity. He is one essence and three persons. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit is distinct. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. And the testimony of the Bible is plain. Jesus is God. John begins his book by saying, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on to tell us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son. So he refers to the Son as the Word, and he says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians says that he, meaning Jesus, is the image or the perfect visible representation of the invisible God. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And lastly, in Hebrews, it says he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is also the testimony of Jesus himself, who said, I and the Father are one. And after he said that, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, and they said, the reason? Because you, Jesus, being a man, make yourself God. They understood he was claiming to be God. And in another place in John, Jesus uses the Old Testament name of God to talk about himself. He says, before Abraham was, I am, which is uh, referring to the Old Testament name, I am who I am, or Yahweh. And again, the Jews pick up stones to throw at him because they understand he's claiming to be God. And so Paul is clear, Jesus is God. The greatest proof of this is the resurrection of Jesus, which we talked about on Easter, which we need to continue to talk about, of which there were over 500 witnesses, and, and, and many more than that. And, and of those witnesses, many died for that truth. Men do not die for that which they know is a hoax. They only die for that which they know is true. Jesus is God. But though he is God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the language of equality, or the language of count, um, Paul uses in this letter. He used it in verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He also used it in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. And, and the idea is that counting something is not that that's actually the way something is. So Jesus is not actually less than God. He is equal with God. But to count something is to treat something some way. Right? So uh, count others more significant than yourselves. It's not that everybody has this level of significance that you are lower than, but it's that we would treat other people. We would see other people. We would consider other people in that way. And so same here with Jesus. Jesus is equal with God, but he did not treat his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And the word grasped here is also interesting. The Greek word here speaks of robbery. The root of that being to take or to seize or this translation to grasp. And the idea is that Jesus didn't use his position of God and being equal with God 
to grasp or to take uh, things in a selfish ambition, right? We can see the language in verse 3, selfish ambition and conceit. Jesus was not operating in selfish ambition and conceit. He wasn't exploiting his position for personal gain, but rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. Now, this verse uh, stir, has stirred a lot of controversy because of this language of empty. But I think uh, Paul is pretty clear on what he means when we just keep reading. So we, we see, uh, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So his emptying was a lowering of himself, a, a humbling of himself. Though he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant, which Paul explains as being born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh and blood. He took on humanity. That's what this emptying is. Jesus had this position of prominence as God, but he didn't treat that position as something to be used for selfish ambition, but rather lowered himself by taking on human flesh. And Paul certainly didn't have this in mind when he wrote this, but it's interesting to me that we use the language today of prideful people. We say that a prideful person is full of themselves. And Paul here describes the humility of Jesus as emptying oneself. It doesn't mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but he did humble himself. Now, don't get lost in the weeds of all these words. I I felt like that was important to walk through, but see how incredible this is. God Almighty, the highest being in the universe, lowered himself by taking on flesh and blood, but not just by becoming a man, but he goes further. He condescends so great as to become a man, but to be born, to be born. He, he could have come as a man 30 years old, arrayed in pomp and splendor, but he came as a child, a child that needed to be cared for by parents, a child that needed to be raised Uh, The very earth he created, he had to learn to walk on. Uh, The the one who's called the word had to learn to speak. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was uh, holding my son, who's just seven weeks old. His name's Wells. I was just looking at him. And I was just like, the awe that the son of God became a babe that he was born, the one who's existed for all eternity, the one who is equal with God, the one who is truly God, came to earth as a baby. I mean, to imagine what Mary must have felt knowing she was holding the Son of God in her arms. But even more so, he was born as a baby, but he was not born into a royal family. He didn't... He was not born in this family into which he assumed this position of kingship and honor, but rather he lived as a servant, the form of a servant. He was born into the family of a carpenter. He grew up in that trade. And then when he entered into ministry, he spent three years serving other people. Mark 10 says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And in Matthew, Jesus says, 
Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Because he did not have a home because he was traveling around serving others. He served the widows. He served the sick. He served the lame and the deaf and the lepers, the outcasts. He healed them. He ministered to them. He didn't only uh, heal them and minister them, but he taught them patiently again and again in love. He was constantly living a life of love toward other people. He didn't just come as a man to have all people bow before him and wait on his every need in his manhood, but he came and he spent himself in the service of others. He washed the feet of his disciples. This job that was the job of the servant, these 12 men walking around in sandals on dirty roads, got down and put the towel on himself and washed their feet. The man who is God washes their feet. I, I mean, this, this is no myth or fable. Uh, I, when men create gods or when they create myths and fables, they're often embellished images of what they hope to be, right? Things with power and, and uh, selfishness and requiring others to wait on their every need. But how backwards, how astounding, how, how shocking that when God reveals himself, he comes as the one who made the very feet of men, but then came and washed the very feet of men. And just when you think he can go no lower, he does. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus not only became human, he not only was born, he not only lived the life of a servant, but he came to die. He displayed perfect obedience to the will of his Father. Acts chapter 2 says Jesus had died, died according to the definite plan of God. Jesus said he glorifies God by accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. So it was the Father's plan that Christ would die to save people from their sins. And yet Jesus says also that he laid down his life willingly. He was not forced to. And so he humbles himself in perfect obedience to the will of his Father, and he dies on a cross. The Jews saw death by cross as a curse because of Deuteronomy 21. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. For the Jews, the cross was a curse. For the Gentiles and the Romans, the cross was just a despicable way to die. The great Roman writer and philosopher Cicero said, Far be the very name of the cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the, e the eyes, and the ears of Roman citizens. The cross was despicable because it was the manner of death that carried the greatest pain. As those often died from suffocation as they hung there nailed by feet and hands. And it was the manner of death that carried the greatest shame, as the one there was stripped of their clothes. The offense was nailed above their heads, and they were mocked and humiliated as they died. Do you see how astounding this is? Because as I approach this passage this week, I've read this verse again and again and again, and my prayer was, Lord, give me eyes to see 
the glory of this passage. That the one who is the highest of all beings, the God of all the universe, the one who's greater in power than any other, greater in glory than any other, the one who created all things, sustains all things, reigns as king over all things, that God became a man, a servant, born to die a death on a cross. I titled this sermon, A Wondrous Mystery, after the song that we sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery in the Dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. But I love this. Paul doesn't just give us the humility of Jesus and coming to die, but then he gives us the exaltation of Jesus. Because of this, as a result of this, therefore, because of his humility, the Father exalts the Son. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Double emphasis, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. He then ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven where he's glorified. And we see that he has been given a name that is higher than any other name. All the heavens, all angels and heavenly hosts, all the earth, every person in it, and even under the earth, the, the devil, every demonic force, all of this, all of these will bow to the name of Jesus. This description comes from Isaiah of every knee and tongue, where it speaks of God himself. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Every knee, every tongue, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. While the Roman colony of Philippi would be acknowledging Caesar as Lord, Paul directs them back to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he has the name that is above every name. I love the songs in the book of Revelation when they speak of Jesus, the Lamb of God, it's like the, the writer, uh, it's, it's like the angels and those singing in heaven. It's like they can't get enough words out to express the worth and the glory of God. Just listen to these. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Another one, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And lastly, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There is no name as glorious as the name of Jesus. No name higher than the name of Jesus. No one deserving of all worship other than Jesus the Lamb of God who took, takes away the sins of the world. Now, I've got three points of application that I want to share from this passage now that we've walked through it. 
And the first thing is something that I've missed over and over again, but I, I think it's really needed. And as I was reading yesterday, um, I felt like the Lord just showed me this in the text. And it's this. You are actually not the main object of Christ's humility. You say, what? Well, no, Jesus came to die for me, for my sins. Well, that's true, but it's not the main thing here. I want you to notice, you and I actually aren't in this passage. Uh, Let's look at it together. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Here it is, he humbled himself. That's his humility. But he humbled himself how? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Christ humbled himself by his obedience, but was he obedient to you? No. He was obedient to the Father. And because of his humble obedience to the Father, the Father is the one who exalts him. And then as he's exalted, he gives glory to the Father. That's the very end of it, to the glory of God the Father. So do you see what what Paul is painting here? He's showing us this picture of the humble love of God within himself. The Son humbly loves and obeys the Father. The Father exalts the Son, which is to the glory of the Father. And other passages in the Bible include the Spirit too. Uh, This one, just the Father and the Son. But the picture is that the triune God is perfectly loving and in communion and fellowship within himself. You might say, well, why do you point that out? Because I think today many Christians have this view of the love of God like a romantic love among humans. In relationships, we often hear phrases like this. I don't know what I'd do without you. I can't live without you. I would rather die than not be with you. I'm lost without you. Right? We hear these things in in modern romantic language and relationships. But many Christians view the love of God like this. Like God is just pining after you in love. Because he needs you and he's incomplete without you. But I want to show you that that's totally wrong. The testimony of the Bible is that God is in perfect, loving fellowship within himself in the Trinity. And his love for us is the outflow of that love. God does not love us out of need. He loves us out of the abundance of his good love and character, of his holiness. And hear me say, like, God loves you. Other passages highlight this. Ephesians chapter 2 says, uh, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So other passages highlight God's love for us. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you in a way that's greater than any human love. But he loves you from the abundance of himself, not because he's incomplete without you. The example of Christ's humility actually creates humility in us when we realize it's not about us. So the question I have for you today is, do you think that Christianity 
is mainly and mostly about you or about the glory of God? I think this passage points us and redirects us to what is most important, the glory of God. The second thing is this passage by itself has so much in it, and it's this exalted language about Jesus. A lot of people actually think this is a, this is a hymn that Paul has written here, a song. This is the exalted language. But don't miss where we started. Paul started this by saying, have the attitude of humility among yourselves. So this example of Jesus is to lead us to humility. Uh, so the application is to dwell on Jesus' example of humility for yourself. Think about it. Meditate on it. Maybe even memorize this passage. Because I believe that the more that we can see the example of Jesus' humility, the more that we can see it in the one who we worship, the more that we see how even we're affected by it, the more we will be moved in humility toward one another. And the example that I see of Christ in this passage is that the one who is highest went the lowest. And I think that's a really easy way to think about humility. You say, what is humility? Humility is going low. Pride is going high, right? Pride is lifting yourself up. It's making yourself higher and putting yourself above others. But humility is going low. Saying, in what ways can I serve other people? Doesn't matter what position I have. Doesn't matter what job I have. Doesn't matter what, what uh, status I have. How can I go low and serve other people? And this is where it gets real too. Again, have humility among yourselves. So we need to think, not just how do we have humility in general, but how do you have humility in Vero Bible Fellowship? How do you have humility toward the people in this room right now? In what areas, in what ways can you serve others by going low? Lastly, I want to just address anyone listening or anyone here that is not a Christian. We see here that Jesus was exalted in his resurrection and in his ascension, but one day he will return. And when he does, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. When Christ returns, you will bow. But the question is, in what manner? Will that be a joyful bow before the Lord? Or will it be sorrowful? Will it be resistant? While the humility of Christ was ultimately for the glory of God, as we just saw, his humility is what saves us. That's part of this. When, while God deserved all of our love, all of our worship, every single person has sinned against God and rejected his authority. Every person deserves God's just condemnation. Every person deserves by their deeds, by their heart, to spend eternity in hell, in the place where Jesus says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. But God made a way of salvation 
when Jesus died on the cross in humility, God used his death as a substitute and he poured out the judgment that we deserved upon his son and then raised him from the grave so that he showed, he displayed that Jesus is God and he showed that his sacrifice was finished. His sacrifice was accomplished and complete. So all who turn to Jesus today can receive this gift of grace. What is the gift of grace? It's the forgiveness of our sins. It's a relationship with God and it's eternal life in the presence of God and joy forever. But this is only for those who seeing the example of Christ's humility, humble themselves before God, recognize their need for him, and turn and surrender to him. And for those who trust in him, you will be saved. And so the question today is, do you trust in him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Because if you trust in him today, you will be saved. All will bow on that day, but your bowing will be glad, for your king will have returned. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm just going to invite our prayer partners and elders, if they want to come forward to the front. Let's pray together. Father God, again, this passage is just so glorious. I just feel the weight of not being able to live in response to this, not being able to grasp the truth of this. So we need your help. We need your help to make this real to us. We know that it is real, that it is history, but we need your help to really allow it to impact us. And so, Lord, I pray that the example of the humility of Christ would create in us a deep humility before you and a deep humility and love toward one another. Create this attitude in us, Lord, for the sake of unity as a church, for the sake of our witness in Vero Beach, Sebastian, Fort Pierce, that we might be witnesses for you and that you might use our witness to change the world around us, to, to call those who are far from you into relationship with you and to share the glorious news of the gospel. We thank you, Lord. We need your help for this. We need your help for all of this. And so we ask humbly for these things in your name. Amen. Just want to say, if you need prayer for anything, we have our prayer partners who are up here at the front, and they would love to pray with you. If today you have made a decision to give your life to Christ, please come up and pray with one of the prayer partners too. We'd love to hear about it and just get to pray with you and celebrate and rejoice in that. Thank you for being here today, church, and I hope that you have a wonderful Sunday and day in the Lord.